Well, are you ready for tonight? You know what it is, right? The Oscars. <laughs> I, uh, however much I love movies, I actually have never really gotten into the Oscars. Um, but I know that it will certainly dominate the headlines tomorrow. Uh, there is a certain sense of expectation that builds up for what's going to happen at this event. This year, the expectation is a little different. The, the main story probably won't be who won. It probably won't be who got snubbed or even who was the best dressed. This year's expectation will be who landed the best political zinger. Who took a stand? Who used the spotlight to say something about issues that are going on? That is going to be the headline. In fact, it would be shocking if that wasn't the headline tomorrow. And that's not necessarily new for Hollywood. But increasingly, over the last several months, we have now come to expect political commentary from all corners. I read an article the other day where a sports columnist was saying sports writers must not now stay neutral. We need our wisdom from the sports writers. Uh, They must use their platform to speak out against issues. And the elephant in this room is, will the church speak out? Will the church take a side? Can we call out moral issues? Or will we retreat? Will we refer to things, quote-unquote, as spiritual and really mean by that irrelevant? I want us to ask these questions honestly, to explore them. What is the church? What are we called to be? What's at stake? Now, before you roll your eyes and think, okay, another political message, let me assure you that this runs far deeper than politics. This is, gets to the core of who we are in all the details of our life. And with that lofty claim, let's not rest on our wisdom, certainly not my wisdom, but let's look to God and his word and how he guides us and instructs us. And to do that, let's ask him to bless our understanding of it. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage that is intended to um, teach us about yourself and about your promises. Bless us now as we engage it, knowing that it is meant to lead us to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So up to this point, in the first seven chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, the overarching theme has been hope in unexpected places. Again and again, we see that we need to put our hope in things that appear meager, small, insignificant. That's the way the book opens. We see Hannah, poor Hannah, with so many things in life telling her that that she is worthless. She's the one that gives the prophecy of the great hope of what's to come. She sets the tone. And then we see little Samuel rising up to power. Even the section that talks about the ark, 
really, we see a box. A box with God's commandments in it, captured by the Philistines, and a box is able to bring that mighty nation to its knees. Now, the point isn't that God loves the underdog. I mean, even in a book that talks about the real David versus Goliath, we're to misunderstand it if we think that it's just about underdogs. No, the point is we are to trust in God's covenant promises. A covenant is a relationship that God makes with his people. And he establishes a hope in that that his people should cling to in the face of present circumstances that might tell us that hope is found other places. That message again and again that is brought to God's people. And we actually see the glowing best example of this in chapter 7. Israel miraculously finally gets it where the Philistines are right in their face, threatening, by all accounts, a much bigger and more powerful military. Instead of Israel quaking, instead of them rushing to fill up their armories or recruit more people into battle, they turn to prayer. They turn to repentance and faith. They call on Samuel to intercede for them. And then miraculously, God does. And the Philistines are defeated. Well, we clearly see the transition between chapter 7 and chapter 8. There has been quite a lot of time. Samuel, we're told, is now old. And the Israelites are back at their old ways. They're doubting. Will God's plan really work? Should we put in with what he has for us? Should we place our hope in his methods? Now, what's changed? I mean, we'll find out that it's clear that the Philistines are still breathing down their neck. There's still a political threat, a military threat that's coming at them. Perhaps what's changed is that they want an alternate government. We see here that that Samuel's sons are starting to take over some of his duties. And what they are doing is corrupt. They're taking bribes. Now, both things are legitimate reasons to act. Both uh, feeling uh, the the threat of an approaching force and the corruption that's going on in leadership are reasons to act. To trust in God doesn't mean to be complacent. To trust in God doesn't mean just to let things go on. In fact, allowing Samuel's sons to remain in power would have been a denial of the covenant, not an example of trusting it. You know, 1 Samuel is filled with fathers having trouble with their sons. We saw that with Eli, who couldn't control his wayward sons. Here it is with Samuel, who is having trouble as his sons turn to corruption. It'll be David's shame, his great shame in in that all that he could do in his kingdom to to seek after God, his sons, all of them turn away in, in different ways. In fact, the only one who has faithful sons out of the whole thing is Saul. It wasn't wrong for Israel to demand a change in government. It's clear, though, from this context, 
that something was wrong. Something about their request to God was sinful. What was it? Some have speculated that the problem was asking for a king itself, as if kingship was the problem. Was it wrong to ask for a king? Is is that a bad type of government, a monarchy? Now, certainly Samuel's speech, starting in verse 11, mentions all the ways a monarchy can go horribly wrong. And one can see from that that any centralized government, you know, before this time, the the tribes, it was more of a tribal system where different parts of the country, uh, of the nation of Israel, were led by these warlords who controlled almost everything. A move to a kingship brings a centralized government with ultimate power there residing wherever the king would be. And Samuel shows how this could be a an instrument for corruption and oppression. And one could read this passage this way. We could say how easy it is for all of us to rationalize ourselves into a dictatorship. A little bit of corruption here, a threat there, and we say, yes, give us a dictator to give us strong armies, to clean up corruption that's all around, to crack down. And so, reading it that way, you might say, well, the moral of the story here is to show us how foolish it would be to ask for a dictator. That, corruption, that power always corrupts. And that will bring more oppression than any of the problems that they face. I mean, think about that. That type of message will preach. <laughs> That'll preach certainly in America. Down with monarchy, down with dictatorships, up with Powers to the people. Give me some tea so I can throw it in the harbor somewhere. But reading this passage that way, while certainly compelling, is utterly secular. We need to be in tuned here with what God is teaching us. Because there is a deeper tragedy here that we would miss if we thought this was, if we thought this was simply talking about government. The problem isn't politics. The problem here is theology. The problem is their understanding of God and his promises for them. Asking for a king wasn't a problem. In fact, if we go back to chapter 2 and Hannah's prayer, the thing that she closes that prayer with is asking for a king. And the book that that precedes Samuel, the one that that leads historically right into the events of 1 Samuel is the book of Judges. And over again, the the theme of Judges has been there was great sin in Israel because there was no king. That's even how the book ends. People didn't know God. They were sinning because there was no king. Deuteronomy 17, a great prophetic section of God's word that talks about what Israel will be like. It describes that there will be a king, and not in negative terms, necessarily. The real problem wasn't that they asked for a king. It was that they were turning away from their covenant hope. Israel at this time, in asking for a king, was renouncing their unique identity. The thing that made them special. 
And they turned from that in order that they might be like every other nation. That they might be common. So let's take a closer look at this. What is Israel's identity? What was it supposed to be? The first is that Israel was to be a nation, but a nation unlike any other nation. In fact, viewing them as a nation, just as as thinking about them as another country, sometimes can bring a lot of confusion into our lives. It is one of the big reasons why we misinterpret uh, Old Testament passages. and very easily lead us astray. See, they were called to be a holy people. And when I say holy, I don't mean morally perfect. They were called to be separate, strange. You know, holiness, holiness means being set apart for God, being separate for them uh, to, to a, a particular purpose, to be a peculiar people. And this holiness this role that they had was, was intended for them to not act like other nations around them. You think about it. If you were a nation, I mean, just whether it's ancient or modern, if you were to ask any nation, what would it take for you to prosper? What do you need as a nation to prosper? What would a nation say? Right, again, I don't care about what time period. How will your nation prosper? Well, a strong leadership. Powerful military, or at least a competent military. Excellent trade with other nations. Something that can bring wealth and security into your, into your people. You might say, what needs to happen is just laws so that your people can feel safe. Savvy diplomacy so that you can make friends with all the right people And that anything out of your control, you can be protected by the right types of nations. All of these things are timeless. They're good advice to nations. But then you ask the other question, how is Israel supposed to prosper? And the answer is completely different. What was Israel to do to prosper as a nation? Don't go after foreign gods. Follow the commandments of Torah. Obey God's covenant. Do things like be circumcised. Keep kosher. And it didn't matter how big the armies got. They could win victories with just a small handful of people like Gideon. Marching and blowing trumpets around a big nation, big wall, all the things crumbled down. This was strange. That's not, how an, uh, that's not what you're supposed to trust in as a nation. That's what would make them prosper. In fact, if they failed at those things, if they started drifting to other gods, if they, if they worshipped idols, or if they abandoned the law, they were to expect destruction. It didn't matter how mighty they got, how powerful they got, they would get uh, destroyed and brought off into exile on account of their faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. In fact, they're commanded not to make treaties with other nations, to be extreme isolationists. Very strange. But this is really important. When we read the Old Testament, when we look at Israel, it's so tempting for us 
to import that into our context to think of them as an ordinary nation or some, a country to act like another, any other country. We've got to be careful when we apply it. You know, to put it bluntly, Israel is not America. I once saw a map of, of America, and it was trying to depict the temple in Jerusalem over top of the map of America. Kind of made sense. There was, there was the, uh, the oil lamps that are in the temple was Texas, right? The, the bread of presence that goes in the temple is, you know, the breadbasket states. But you lost me when the Holy of Holies was California. I'm out. Sorry. But it's tempting to look at that. And our nation's history throughout has, has taken passages like what we heard in the New Testament, City on a Hill, and thought of it in national terms. Seriously, Christians have constantly tripped over this point. But even those who don't identify it particularly of Israel and America, or Israel and their country, still look at Israel for guidance and guidelines on what a nation is to be. But that's not the point. That will lead us into error if we think that it's really about the type of government that would treat Israel like an ordinary nation. Their problem was that they were turning away from their unique identity They were turning away from God's promises that were given to them as a people because they wanted to act like a normal nation. They wanted to be treated and they wanted to find their hope in the things that everybody else found their hope in. All their neighbors found their hope in the same way what they looked at for strength. And so the request in verse 20, Give us a king that he may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. God was the one who was fighting all of their battles. And now they're looking for the weapons of the world. You know, the way another person said it is, they were tired of being Israel. They were tired of being holy. They wanted to be normal, like every other nation. That's why in... uh, Verse 7, God says to Samuel, this is not about you. This isn't about politics. It's not about rejecting you. They've rejected me as their king. They were trading their hope, their covenant promises, for a different identity. So that's the first thing we need to see. We need to understand Israel. It was not to be like any other nation. We're not to think of them in terms of a nation. But secondly, we're to always see that this special people, this special identity, meant covenant promises that God would bless them. Now, whatever curses that came along with the Mosaic Covenant, they were only staying on a temporal level, on a sticks and stones level. It may hurt your bones, but but ultimately... The promises, the the deepest promises go back to Abraham. And that was a promise that guaranteed unconditionally that God would bless this people. No matter how much despair they ran into, no matter what kind of enemies they faced, 
God would always be faithful. It was a one-way covenant. They didn't even have to do anything to make sure that that was secure because God would do it all. It was a hope that culminated in Jesus Christ. So we should never draw a straight line from Israel to America or even Israel to my life or even for that matter directly from Israel and the church. It's always from Israel to Christ. Christ came in and fulfilled what they couldn't fulfill. Christ was able to pay a penalty they never could pay and be obedient and faithful in a way that they could never be faithful. Only Christ could bring in a blessing. And that was always their hope. They didn't always understand it as a particular figure. It was hard through prophetic uh, expectation of what God would do that was a very generic promise that over time got more specific. But at this time, it's starting to get more specific as a person. And then when the New Testament comes, we see that as Jesus, always the trajectory of Israel was Jesus. And so the really tragic thing about Israel's decision to ask for a king was that what they were in essence doing was rejecting their identity, renouncing their special identity to be a nation like every other nation. Made me think of Mark Twain's Prince and the Pauper, where Prince Edward is sort of tired of royal life and he doesn't he, he longs to sort of just be an ordinary kid out playing among other people and not with all the trappings of court life until he meets his, his identical twin who was a pauper and then they decided they would switch roles. And however much freedom he was expecting to find out there, what he saw was injustice and misery and sickness and corruption. And the story only winds up to be an enjoyable story because he could actually go back and be king again. But Israel never thought about going back. It was giving up that privileged place to be ordinary. This is what Israel is doing in chapter 8. They're trading their covenantal hope for pragmatic solutions. Trading Christ to mimic the solutions of the world. They're abdicating their privileged hope to settle. They wanted a kingdom of this world. Now when Jesus comes and says, I bring a kingdom not of this world, he's not saying that, no, my kingdom is in some outer space somewhere or some different planet. No. The of is that it's not characterized by the things of this world. It's it's a different function, a different type of kingdom than you can expect, that you're used to. But they wanted a kingdom of this world, just like everybody else. And so when Samuel comes in and tries to convince them that this is not going to go well with them, they will not hear it. He doesn't simply say this because it's a monarchy, but he says it whether or not it's any type of government. Winston Churchill said, right, that democracy is the worst conceivable government except for all others, or at least it's reputed to what he he said that. He could have said that about any 
type of government. The point was, they were abandoning their identity. And Samuel wanted to show that it was not going to end well with them. By being just like another nation. He mentions how kings will treat them. And the verb that comes again and again there, six times this verb is used, take. These kings of yours will take, take, take. They will take your sons and bring them into the military to die for your country. They will take your daughters to make their courts lavish and luxurious. They will take your property to make themselves be monop- uh, have a monopoly and to be wealthy. They will take, take. And Samuel's not leaving this ambiguous. This is a prophecy. They will do this. And it does play out. And then that sad thing is, Israel hearing all of that gives this heartbreaking response in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. There shall be a king over us. You just can't help but be drawn to that scene when Pilate brings Jesus to his people and says, here is your king. And their response is, no, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. God's response in judgment is unlike what we would think. He's not coming with fire and brimstone. He doesn't cast lightning bolts down to destroy them. No, he does what so often we see God's judgment look like. He gave them what they wanted. He turned them over to their desires. That's exactly how Paul talks about God's judgment in Romans 1. Handing them over to their desires. That is a very dangerous place to be when God gives you what you want. When God doesn't put the obstacles in your life, if you have starting to feel resistance to exactly what your heart is longing for, if you're starting to feel the tension that God is frustrating you at every turn, rejoice. He's saving you. But it's a scary thing when you don't feel that. And you're given the very thing you long for. But they cry out despite all warnings. And God says, obey their voice. Let them have it. That powerful line from C.S. Lewis is just sort of echoing there where Lewis says there's going to be two types of people at the end of the day. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Judgment comes to those who want to abandon being Israel, abandoning this special promise. But what's the message for us? How can we abandon our unique identity as God's people? How can we renounce our inheritance and exert a type of power or look for a type of power that everyone else uses? Well, first the church must not seek to exert the type of power and influence that just mimics activist groups and political parties. 
We must not sell out our identity. There have been many calls for the church to use its platform to condemn publicly actions that are out there in the world, globally or nationally. It may never be said that they should abandon the gospel because of this. In fact, probably it said, yeah, sure, keep, keep preaching that Jesus forgives sins. But over here, you also have to deal with these issues. Condemn this, these moral issues. Now, can the church speak out against moral issues? Yes, please. Can the church speak out against issues that are sinful? Yes. The church must not be silent. When when there are issues of sin that we can tell from good and necessary consequence from Scripture are sins, then we must not cower in fear. We must not hope that what we say can be glossed over by anyone that it might offend. We must not fear to offend somebody for the sake of filling our churches. In doing so, we make the gospel soft and lacking any power. But the church must never just address moral issues or sin issues outside the context of the gospel. It's not a call to abandon our covenant hope, a hope that is now for all people. What 1 Samuel is stressing here is a return to our confidence in the gospel. Do you believe in the power of the gospel to, to be the thing that changes? The only thing that will actually bring real change to our world, to our nation, to our city, to your life, is the gospel. Unlike worldly institutions who can identify things but have no voice of hope to speak into them, we have the gospel. And when I say gospel, I'm not talking about something up in the clouds somewhere, something that only stays in your head, or, or, or even just some idea that will float away to some place after we die. If that's your idea of the gospel, then we're missing it. The gospel must come into your life and affect every detail of your life. It's transformative. It's utterly of this world in that it needs to change and call to repentance our actions. What Jesus has done on the cross is intimately related to the issues of this world, and it's the only power to address and change real sin. It's the only power to stop racism. Racism, at the end of the day, is just selfishness. It's worse, it's wicked selfishness. But we can't just stand and condemn selfishness or shame racists. That will not produce change. Only when the gospel comes in to transform a heart. The only source of good news to people who are struggling with sexuality, gender confusion, is the gospel. For only the gospel can come in and say, yes, sin has wreaked havoc on all genders, just as it's wreaked havoc on all ethnicities. 
And only the gospel can come in and say, there is a greater dignity and worth that God offers to you that you can be defined by than some of these other things that are designed to be less important for your identity. It's only the gospel that can frame any discussion of of poverty and wealth and mercy because only the gospel can actually start to change. Now make no mistake, there are plenty of things that that can be done by people of all faiths and none out there as productive. We can support and participate in that, and I hope that you as individuals do it. But I can do that standing shoulder to shoulder with a a Buddhist and a Muslim and an atheist and a humanist and be fine to be in solidarity because those are human issues. But only the gospel and only the church can speak into something that's redemptive, that has power to transform. Yes, we fail as preachers if we don't make the connection of the gospel to real life. Yet when we only address surface issues, when we only preach against particular issues, whatever they might be, even if we can call them gospel issues but never show how the gospel connects to them, then what have we become? Legalists. Moralists. We become the church wagging its finger at the world. We become like everyone else, trying to wrestle with these issues, condemning it, but offering actually nothing of hope. Rodney Clapp, in his book, Peculiar People, says it this way, if the church is nothing more than, for instance, a volunteer social workforce or political lobby, then why fool with liturgy, the Bible, and other encumbrances of Christian tradition? Why not just form a volunteer social workforce and political lobbies. And if the pastor is, in the end, nothing more than a psychotherapist, why have her preach at us in the hoary language of sin and redemption? Why not skip theology and church history and get thoroughly trained as a competent counselor? Are we wasting our time here? Have we lost confidence in the gospel? Have we seen it only addressing privileged issues, issues for privileged people? Do we think it's irrelevant to the real problems that that we discuss? You as an individual, as a citizen, have responsibilities to act for all sorts of important ways to constrain evil, to promote good human dignity. But the greatest crisis facing the world is unbelief. That's the root. And the greatest hope is for the church to be the church. To continue week after week to present the gospel. To present these means of grace to you in the context of people who are broken. Not the morality police, but its perpetrators. Those who are sinful and those who have found a gracious God. Okay. This goes deeper than politics. This goes deeper than addressing global issues. This also needs to affect your life as an individual. So secondly, it must affect 
your life. Because we have a tendency to be like the nation of Israel in that we look for solutions apart from the Gospel. We, we have a tendency to, to experience our problems and to view them in mechanical terms. That what's really needed is not repentance or faith, but is just a better technique. Just help me live life better, manage it better, be a better parent, to deal with my problems in a more efficient and effective way, get through work in a way that, that I don't feel condemned every evening. The time and again we struggle to see that the gospel speaks into these issues, that these are gospel problems. You know, we, we struggle with, with the, the feeling, low self-esteem of the, of the criticisms that come at us from other people that weigh us down. And what do you think our solution is? Our solution often is, well, I need to be more charismatic. I need to dress better. I need to, I need to do things that, that can uh, draw people's applause and praise. No, that, that is only feeding something that you've turned into an idol. Only the gospel can speak to those things to say you've been placing too much weight on what other people say and not enough weight on what God says. Only the gospel can come in and say, you're actually far worse than they're saying. <laughs> but you're also far more loved than you can even imagine. You struggle with anxiety. You, you want to control things in the world. Control things that are outside of your control. We don't see that desire as the problem. I was on campus a few days ago, and they were talking about how the anxiety level among undergrads was at its highest they'd ever experienced, and especially them facing an uncertain work future. Their solution was to have these Career workshops where they can plan out the next 10 years of their life. Yes, let's feed the very problem that's causing them to be up at night. No, the problem is to say, yes, I don't have control over these things. I can never get enough control over these things. But I need to trust the one who does have ultimate control, that he's good and that he loves me. read so many parenting books. Help me to parent. I don't know how to get my kids to behave. Well, kids, I hope your parents are teaching you right from wrong. I trust that they are. And I sometimes see that they are. I'm guilty as well. But however much you teach them, however much they teach you to be loving towards other people, not to be selfish, to love truth, but to hate lying. They are going to constantly need to either punish you or reward you to get you to obey. It will only be as they shepherd your heart with the gospel, showing you that the sin, the thing your heart seeks after, is actually dangerous for you. But then once you know your identity in Christ, you don't have to pursue those things. That it frees you up that you can experience something far greater than what you think will be satisfied with the little things that you seek. Okay, I need to end. I need to end with this point. What if we have sold out? 
What if we've already sold out? What if we've just constantly been drunk on political power or drunk on the pragmatic things that we are looking for and we have abandoned the hope that God is talking about here? What if we've become faithless? We see in this passage God turning people over to their desires. What if we have felt turned over to these things and they've dominated us? Hear the good news. What Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. What we see in this passage is only part of the story. Yes, God gave them over and let them get a king, but God will use that office of kingship and he will eventually fulfill it to be Christ. The word Christ means king, Messiah. He will take this very wrong motive, this sinful motive, and he will bring about it the very salvation that he had always promised. He will be faithful. Maybe you've come in here knowing you've made mistakes, knowing you've sinned, maybe out of a lack of fear, maybe a lack of faith, maybe selfishness. You feel like you've made decisions and they've brought you into a place that just feels like way off the beaten path from what God's best is for you. Is that you? You feel like there's no hope of getting back? Hear the words of 1 Samuel. Because God uses even their sinfulness, even their mess to make a masterpiece even their sinful decisions to bring about the amazing blessing that he's promised. God has promised to bless his people. A blessing that is offered to you. It's a call to come back to trusting him and knowing that this blessing awaits. Let's pray.